It is December 5th, 2018. We have Grand Rounds presentations next week from Dr. Scott Benjamin, in, who's a physiatrist, um, shared between us and the University of Vermont uh, Children's Hospital, and uh, then an update on pediatric dentistry before the holidays. We are in, in the thick of the holiday season, but also a reminder in the thick of our intern recruitment season with our really our busiest month of candidates uh, visiting us. So please continue to come for the noon lunch social as well as case conferences to, to meet the candidates and, and show what our faculty is about. And, um, and then we'll have a couple of break, a couple week break in the end of the season. This morning, I have the pleasure of welcoming to the podium um, Dr. Bridget Linehan Logan. Uh, I'm going to say this and probably be wrong, but a native of Norwich, Vermont, or at least a native of Vermont, a native of Stratford, Vermont. Um, Bridget uh, was a, a bachelor's in arts and science in history and nursing from, nursing from the University of Vermont. And subsequently, I received her master's in nursing from the University of Massachusetts, and in 2011, her PhD in nursing. She is on our faculty as an associate prof assistant professor of pediatrics and also serves on the faculty of the University of New Hampshire, having also been an assistant professor at Franklin Pierce University and UMass Amherst. She participates as faculty in the uh, nursing INBRAE program as a research leader and has presented uh, 20 talks both regionally and nationally on um, both urology and nursing leadership. She has seven publications. I see one with, Dr. with Bridget Mudge, actually, from 2015 on the Journal of Professional Nursing, and most recently has a, a publication in press on urinary incontinence among adolescent female athletes in the Journal of Pediatric Urology. Today she will be teaching us about pediatric urology and three tales of urinary incontinence. So, Dr. Dr. Logan, thank you. Good morning. Thanks so much for coming. I have no disclosures, but I would like to uh, begin by saying that the program that Keith just spoke about, the IDEA Network for Biomedical Research, uh, provides an undergraduate nursing student to me every summer to, um, to work on research. And it's really because of these students that I'm able to do any of this um, research. And you'd recognize a lot of the names because many of them, after the year of working here in the summer, um, become hired full-time pediatrics. So you'll see Sammy Blaze's name, uh, Kaylee McDonald, Michelle Constant. They've all worked on projects with me. And again, I couldn't have done this stuff without them. <clears throat> so I'm going to tell you about three small studies that I've done. They are small and modest. They're all retrospective reviews or lit reviews. Um, and they're only a little bit related to each other. Um, and that's a little bit unusual, I know, but I'm kind of going to wander through uh, my thought processes in the last six or seven years, and that's how it came from one project to another. Just a moment to review normal bowel and bladder function before we go on to the specifics. Um, the most important thing to get out of this image is just to remember the proximity of the rectum to the bladder, and that is largely but not entirely why bowel and bladder function go hand in hand. And the sort of the starting point for treating anybody that has a bladder problem in pediatrics is to make sure that their bowel habit is optimal before you plan to fix the bladder, because you can't fix the bladder if they are chronically constipated. So 
with little girls who've got a little uterus in between, but um, this picture really emphasizes an empty situation. And if you can uh, imagine a rectum that is distended to 10 or 11 centimeters, which is pretty common in the kids that we see, rather than the norm of three or four, you've got a lot of extra space being taken up by the rectum. And where is that space coming? It's really impinging on the bladder. So the bladder behaves smaller than it actually is, very irritable. Also useful to just be aware of the neurologic parts that have to fall into place to make voiding happen. So <clears throat> when the bladder has urine in it, it stretches the balloon cells of the detrusor muscle. Uh, so the bladder stretches, that sends afferent signals to the hypothalamus and the periaqueductal gray. And there's a loop that, if left uninhibited, would go to the pontine micturition center and right back down to the bladder, telling the bladder to empty. So that's sort of a safety mechanism, a reflex arc, that is always allowing the bladder to empty. But when the signals come to the periaqueductal gray, the signal also goes to more sophisticated limbic center and limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. And that allows the judgment and the emotion, uh, the interpretation of, is it okay to pee here and now? It's really circumstantial and environmental. So the, so the prefrontal cortex is always weighing in and deciding what to do with that bladder impulse. Suppress it and wait until a more appropriate time, and that's what we do a lot of the time. <clears throat> so incontinence really comes from four different things, and we have to deal with these four different things all the time when working with a child, and there will be a different emphasis for each kid's situation. So usually it comes from a bladder that's irritated, rectal pressure on the bladder, a pelvic floor that doesn't have much strength to the longer-acting muscles, and too much strength in the short-acting muscles, and they don't know how to relax very well when the child wants to go pee. And then neurologic signals that can be inhibiting the norm, normal voiding pattern. So the first study that we're going to talk about um, is called Voiding Dysfunction Related to Adverse Childhood Experiences and Neuropsychiatric Disorders. Um, when I started this job, uh, Leslie McQuiston and Dan Hers and Paul McGarian taught me an awful lot. Um, and there were really two basic concepts that needed to come very clear right away. One is that the bowel matters a lot if you want the bladder to behave appropriately. And the second one is that the social stressors that a child is living uh, with or has lived with in the past are really huge. But that's really hard to put your finger on. So in the first few years, I would go to conferences, and the, the buzz and the feeling among all of the nurse practitioners who do exactly the same work that I do you know, nationwide, the, the understanding really was that um, families in chaos are really hard to work with, and it's hard to make progress with those kids. And I was just hearing this over and over and over again, and I thought, you know, that's not what I'm seeing at all. I actually love those families. Um, I have a soft spot for them, but I also love it because it's really easy to make progress with them. The kids who are living in the worst situations seem to respond the best. And, and it wasn't, that was not fitting with what everybody else was saying. So I wanted to test that out. So I was taking the assumption, sort of what I was hearing largely, and actually in research also, that kids who have a lot of stressors and neuropsychiatric or behavioral issues don't make progress very well when you're trying to improve their bladder function. And comparing that with my own assumption about my, what I was seeing in clinic. So just in the humdrum daily work, um, as part of the initial consult, 
um, I gather a history about the fluid intake, the bladder habits, the bowel habits. And then looking for other medical conditions that affect the cognition or the development, like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, learning disabilities, developmental delays, seizure disorder, anxiety, depression, etc. Um, because those were already well documented that um, those kids do have a delayed um, progress or um, trajectory of getting better. I also ask separately, and to me, I, I do try to separate these two because I think they are distinct, because the, the last bullet, those are temporary. Some of the top ones are temporary too, but these are really, um, can be very transitory. So I ask about divorce, abuse, adoption, moving a lot, house fire, um, and prison. And you'll notice that it, um, drug use among parents or family members is not in the list that I was using at that time, because I started this list that I now say in my sleep um, nine years ago. And the opioid problem at that time was not as obvious, as I think we could probably all say. It really escalated a lot. And if I were to do this study now, um, opioid use or um, substance abuse would be in that list, but it wasn't then, and that sort of shows where we've come. So the standard treatment is to teach the kids bowel and bladder retraining, um, teach them about appropriate fluid intake, do a bowel clean-out, which has to be a totally effective bowel clean-out, because if it's half-hearted, it's not going to do anything. Um, teaching them to pee every two or three hours, even if they don't feel like it, because at that point we're acknowledging you really can't wait for the kid to feel that they need to go pee. They're not. They're not feeling it, or they're busy with their brain doing other things. So you have to just revert to this sort of superstructure that's imposed on them and go with that. That requires a lot from the adults around them. So you've got to get a lot of buy-in at that first visit, and it takes a lot of teaching and a lot of convincing to help them understand why I'm talking about poop so much in that first visit. <clears throat> and then we talk a little bit about optimal body position that, you know, um, squatting makes much more sense, but toilets aren't designed correctly and breathing and trying to relax. I teach them a little bit about a parasympathetic reaction that <clears throat> when, you, when your heart rate slows down, you can salivate, lacrimate, urinate, defecate, and you really can't do those four things very well when you're stressed out all the time. <clears throat> so then I see them back uh, a month later, and then depending on progress, usually at three or six month intervals from then. Okay, so just we'll talk about two specific examples because you can use th these two kids as we think through the rest of this. Um, David's a 14-year-old boy. He has a history of sexual, verbal, and physical abuse. He's lived in seven foster homes. He came for a history of nocturnal enuresis and late potty training. He has a mood disorder, possible ADHD, and cognitive delay. So he's sort of got everything and a really awful um, history of treatment by his family. He's dry most nights, but he's wet during the nights uh, following supervised visits with his bio mom and following the nights when he's had counseling for the sexual abuse. There are some kids that it's that clear, right? A lot of kids, they'll, they'll wet even if they're in a um, traumatic situation or they've had a past. It'll be a little more nebulous. You can't really pin it down. But then there are kids like this where it's so clear they're wetting that night and no other nights, and it's, it's pretty remarkable. And then a second example is Lisa. She's six. She has also a history of abuse and neglect. Um, she's currently in DCF custody. She comes in with her foster mother. She has no behavioral or diagnosed psychological disorders, um, but she has a really low threshold for feeling scared and um, interpreting everything as a reprimand. So her foster mother was talking about... Um, when she, Lisa was trying to, they were trying to get ready to go to school, and she was um, 
noticing that Lisa hadn't tied her shoe. And she said, tie your shoe, please. And Lisa peed. So she just has such a, a low threshold for interpreting, well, for fear, right? She's very easily um, scared. Okay, so the study was a retrospective review of 216 patients who were being seen for voiding dysfunction. Um, and there were two things that I was trying to find out. In my day-to-day -day assumption, I, was, I, you know, I couldn't really sort out how many of these kids I'm seeing are abused. So that was one of them, was to see what are the rates of adverse childhood experiences in this group of kids, and also what is the rate of the neuropsych and behavioral disorders. <clears throat> there was also uh, an overlap. Some kids have both. I also wanted to compare the uh, treatment success, again, because of what I was seeing in the literature and what I was hearing at conferences. Um, I wanted to see, separate them into three groups. How did the kids with adverse childhood events respond to treatment? How do the kids with neuropsych behavioral disorders respond to treatment compared to kids who have neither of those factors? So it was about half and half, girls and boys. Um, average age of 9.7 years. Pretty wide age range, right? Those are very different experiences, but we're sort of going for gross observations. Um, and it included the diagnoses of urgency, frequency, voiding dysfunction, incontinence, dysuria, uh, enuresis, and UTIs. So those really are all coming from the same thing, so I lumped them all together. And left out anybody that had neurogenic bladder, because that would uh, bring in pretty different issues. Okay, so what did we find? 51% uh, of the group had a history of adverse childhood experiences. 25% of the group had neuropsych behavioral disorders. And 60% had, you know, so there were a bunch of kids that had uh, both. 60% had one or the other. 40% of them had neither. And then we just did really basic um, descriptive statistics. <clears throat> so I thought this was really interesting. And I do think it's really important to point out that while I ask about divorce, abuse, adoption, blah, 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 I do recognize that divorce is not always a bad thing. It is often a relief for a lot of kids, but it does bring its own stress. Even in the best situation where you've got two amicable parents, the child now has two homes, two sets of belongings. They have to remember. They're going to get reprimanded if they leave those belongings. It is really demanding on the kid, even in the best scenario. And in the worst scenario, it's a whole lot worse than that. So I, I do take the divorce one with a little bit of um, more complexity. But a lot of these kids have experienced or witnessed domestic abuse. Um, moving is pretty disruptive. Um, adoption and foster care, recent death in the family, incarcerated. Again, you know, and I wish I could go back and uh, assess more about substance abuse, particularly opioids, because it's so prominent. <clears throat> and then to look more specifically at the neuropsych and behavioral disorders. Um, again, this is using some terminology that was okay then and is a little bit outdated now uh, with autism spectrum disorder. But, um, you know, these are very, very different things. I don't want you to think I'm lumping them together as though they're similar. It's just that these are large buckets of um, things that are not ACEs, and we know they affect the path of progress. <clears throat> so some of the findings. Um, consistent with what I had read previously, the neuropsych and behavioral problem kids um, do have lower rates of progress. It is genuinely harder to make progress getting a kid dry when he or she has autism or ADHD. Not real surprising. Um, the patients with ACEs, remember I came into this thinking that the kids with ACEs had a surprisingly good um, effect. 
Um, and it turned out that the patients with ACEs had about the same rate of resolution as symptoms with no problems. So it wasn't quite as um, that when the families are going through a lot of struggle um, and they have a hard time with transport or getting the, you know, the family act together to get to appointments or the follow through with the recommendations, it's harder for them to get further down the line to total progress, total resolution. <clears throat> so the, the high dropout rate is noted among both of those groups. So in summary, kind of wrapping up that little study, um, it's really essential that anybody doing this job would need to do a good social and neuropsych behavioral history um, and then develop the treatment plan around that, expecting that the no-show rate is going to be um, higher, expecting that um, the ability of the mother to prompt the child to pee every two hours, it's going to be harder for her too. It's not like the child has the problems in a vacuum. But there's no reason to be dismal at the outset, no reason to expect that these kids are not going to do as well because they should do as well. Um, and then really supportive follow-up strategies um, are essential. <clears throat> well, that's good. That gave me some observations and sort of a reality check about what I was reading and what I was hearing and what I was seeing in clinic. But it still didn't answer, well, what's actually going on here? Why is this happening? And Honestly, I didn't have a good answer when that article came out. I think that was 2014. But since 2014, a lot of um, research has been done, partly because of functional brain MRIs. And the understanding now is a lot better than it was then. So if you look at the dates on the articles there on the first bullet, they're all really recent. And this is just sort of exploding now. It's really cool. So um, a growing body of literature um, explaining the, the correlations between childhood urinary incontinence and the biopsychosocial factors and what's happening in the CNS. Um, and we know that uh, lower urinary tract symptoms may be the presenting symptom before a child is diagnosed with other things. So it can actually be, you know, the canary in the coal mine. And we can, I think that in primary care, you can certainly see it that way and screen for those things because it may be showing up before anything else. Okay, so just thinking about the stress response, um, so the hypothalamus stimulates a sympathetic reaction. The adrenal medulla releases epinephrine and norepinephrine. And under moderate stress, we're going to separate this, um, under moderate stress, the signal goes up to the periaqueductal gray. That sends the bladder fullness, as I mentioned before. The limbic system and the prefrontal cortex weigh in and inhibit voiding except under the right circumstances, the right place and the right time. And by doing that, it is relaxing the bladder and tightening the sphincter in the pelvic floor. But during acute fear, something else is happening. The prefrontal cortex is momentarily preoccupied with the experience of what's going on, and that inhibition that happens in the prefrontal cortex is gone. So if there's urine in the bladder, that reflex arc is just going to happen. So a child who feels uh, scolded and is tying her shoe because she thinks she's being yelled at will pee out of fear because that mechanism of inhibition at the prefrontal cortex is momentarily interrupted. <coughs> so the stress response, we're looking at it more in the a bigger picture. The amygdala recognizes the stressor. The hypothalamus stimulates the cortisol release. The pituitary is stimulating the adrenal corticotropic hormone, and the adrenal cortex releases the mineral corticoids and the glucocorticoids. And then the brain is bathing in this in a chronic state for kids who are um, repeatedly or chronically exposed to that horrible situation. And that can be measured in um, cortisol levels in the hair, in the saliva, 
Um, lots of clever things now are being tracked about when kids will, um, how long the trajectory of cortisol escalation or elevation lasts for them. And this is, again, just emphasizing the same thing, but I, I included this slide because I think this little list in the lower left is really, it's important to me because when I screen for the, the child's ability to pay attention to body signals and sense a bladder urge, that often you know, slides right into ADHD or ADD. But I don't know that ADD and ADHD are not the same thing as the decreased attention that comes from this crisis that they're living in. So I, to me, there's a very blurry line there and these things are, um, uh, can be temporary. And so whether there's a diagnosis of ADD or whether there's a, a very stressful situation the child's been living in, it doesn't really make much difference to me. They're not listening to their body. Okay, so that's sort of it for that first topic. And then that, that led me to think other things. And um, is Dr. Filiano here? Um, we were having, I was picking his brain about all this um, neurologic stuff while I was trying to figure this out. And uh, we were talking about laughter. And, um, and you know, if anybody's going to know something weird, it would be Jim. So I asked him, <laughs> um, do you know anything about what's, what the brain is doing during laughter? Because a lot of kids pee during laughter. And, um, and he was saying, no, I don't. But I do know that um, a lot of police officers, if you ask them, they're very familiar with the, uh, the act during um, handcuffing. People will pee. So <laughs> we've had these conversations what laughter is, it's actually the release of stress. Like think of a comedy routine where someone's telling a joke and you don't know where it's headed and there's this tension building and people who can really tell stories do that really well. They build, 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 and then there's the punchline. And laughter, as Jim was describing it from what he was reading, is it ended. That tension build up relieved. That's what the laughter is. And if you listen to stand-up comedy with that kind of thought process, it's pretty neat. Anyway, so we're talking about the different things. It's not just laughter. Maybe fear is the same thing. And then I always wonder about tickling. Why the heck do kids t uh, laugh when they're being tickled? It's not funny. It doesn't feel good. Um, <laughs> and, and then there are um, gelastic seizures where people will have laughter seizures. Um, and I had witnessed those uh, for many years. So there are all these weird things. And so anyway, trying to figure out there's more to this than just um, what the kids in stress are experiencing. And so it made me want to look at laughter. There are a lot of teenage girls and um, kind of pre-adolescent girls that come in, and the only time they have incontinence is during laughter. So there's actually a diagnosis for that, and it's called giggle incontinence. Um, but at the moment of laughter, a bunch of different things are happening. One is your brain's experiencing the laughter. One is that if you're having really, really laughing your butt off laughter, you've got a pretty significant intra-abdominal uh, pressure increase with uh, abdominal contraction. And the other thing I kept noticing was, you know, I like um, adolescent athletes, so I, the girls in particular, I ask them about what sports they do, and I was noticing this crossover of the athletes and the laughter incontinence. I thought, wow, what the heck is going on there? Does that mean that, I mean, of course there's something neurologic going on during laughter, but these athletes have a lot of abdominal musculature, so maybe they have really high intra-abdominal pressure during laughter, and is it abdominal or is it neurologic or what? So Sammy Blaze helped me write a lit review about this because I wanted to just figure out what do we know about this weird diagnosis of giggle incontinence. And I have to say, it kind of pissed me off right off the bat because it's not giggling. It's, this is a really the wrong word to use. Um, you know, giggling is sort of a light laughter, 
and it is pretty much controlled. It's voluntary. But the laughter that people have when they have incontinence is usually involuntary, and it is really full laughter. They can't necessarily stop it, and that's when voiding happens. And it's not voiding that you can interrupt. It's usually a lot of pee. So that leaves kids in a pretty distressed situation where they were at their most joyful moment, and it just became their most humiliating moment. And they live in fear about that. So then you've got a 10-year-old girl, a 12-year-old girl, who's afraid to laugh, and that's just a pit. So I do want to figure this out, and I know it seems like the weirdest topic in the world, but it's, it's interesting because of the neurologic thing and the fear and the stress and just trying to understand it. So anyway, we went back and looked at every article that has any reference to giggle incontinence. The first term, the first time it came up in literature was in 1959, and right off the bat, someone pointed out that giggle is the wrong word, and he was right, but everybody else ignored him after that. Um, so there are two different things. If you read all of those articles, there are sort of two general assumptions that come out of it. One is that there is some stress incontinence going on. Yes, there is an abdominal contraction. There is increased pressure. And if you have voiding dysfunction and constipation, it sort of sets you up for that. But there's also obviously a neurologic experience of laughter. And like we were saying before, the prefrontal cortex guarding that, that inhibition seems to be um, interrupted. And oddly enough, the only medical treatment for uh, giggle incontinence is Ritalin. And it works. It's just that most people are not willing to take it because how often do you laugh that hard? Right? That's not something that most kids or parents want to use every day to solve a problem that happens every once a week or two weeks. Okay, so now what happens in the brain during laughter? So there is a separation between voluntary and involuntary laughter. The voluntary laughter originates in a different location. It leads through the motor cortex and the pyramidal um, tract to the ventral brainstem. These are lighting up, and the top left in the black is tickling and laughter. Just pointing out that the tickling laughter is very different brain locations. It's doing something different neurologically than voluntary laughter on the far right. <clears throat> and now, you know, if you, I was thinking about this a lot in the last few days. If you think of what the facial expression is when a person is doing voluntary laughter versus involuntary laughter, we all know when a person is sort of in that zone of laughter they can't really stop because they have paralysis of some facial muscles, and it's a really distinct look. If you think of a 13-year-old boy or girl, you know it when you see it, even in a picture. So these, whatever's going on in the brain then turns into stimulating skeletal muscle, facial muscle, respiratory system. So laughter is way more than a neurologic experience. It really does play out in our bodies. Okay, so what's happening during incontinence during laughter? It's the same thing that I described with fear, and it's the same slide. So um, the periaqueductal gray is sensing bladder fullness. The signal gets sent to the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system, but those two systems are overwhelmed at that moment and not inhibiting peeing. So the pontine micturition center sends the signal back down to the bladder, go ahead and pee. So again, I'm, I'm questioning whether this is all the same stuff, fear, stress, tickling, seizures, so a few takeaways from that literature review are that it's not giggling, it's laughter incontinence, um, and that the cause of the incontinence um, during the laughter might be the same during other heightened emotions. So if you're going to rename it, it really ought to be something more broad like um, extreme emotion or heightened emotional experiences laughter, or incontinence, excuse me. 
Um, and of course, it's a, it's a dual experience. And if a child has laughter incontinence, I'm certainly going to start by treating it as a bowel and bladder dysfunction and then deal with the neurologic part. A couple other takeaways. Um, start with the bowel and bladder dysfunction. Methylphenidate works, but not that many people want to take it. And um, if we keep talking about it, the diagnosis of giggle incontinence is strictly that to use that diagnosis, the child only has incontinence during laughter. Well, if you isolate it to only laughter, you lose all these other kids who are athletes who uh, laugh, urinate when they laugh, that they also have daytime or nighttime enuresis. And you're just losing information by separating it. So to me, we should kind of knock down that barrier and just talk about incontinence that happens during laughter, regardless of whether they also have incontinence other times. Okay, so that brought me back to the idea of, yeah, but what about those athlete, those adolescent athlete girls that have laughter incontinence and they're super athletes and super strong and might have leaking some other times? Is it just a coincidence? I don't know, but I wanted to find out. So this study was with um, Eleni Zotos, and she, she and I looked, um, we developed a questionnaire to deter, you know, to ask all the questions about how many um, days per week do you exercise? How many weeks per year do you exercise? Or how many seasons per year do you exercise? Um, we're trying to get to how much, where's the threshold of how much, how elite are you um, that it starts to affect your bladder function? So um, this is about, this is not about urinary, um, this is not about incontinence during laughter at the moment. This is purely about athletes. So this study, um, this topic has already been studied. There are about 34 articles about um, incontinence during athletics. And I think the average person would think, well, women who do athletics, particularly elite athletes, have incredible musculature everywhere, right? And um, you'd expect it to be strong in the pelvic floor, and therefore incontinence wouldn't be an issue. But actually, um, it's pretty high rate, 26 to, 20, to uh, 28% of elite female athletes experience incontinence during their sports. And there's one study that shows that 28% um, of um, Olympic athletes had incontinence during the Olympics. So their, their elite athletic status is certainly not protection from incontinence and may actually exacerbate it. So a lot of studies, several um, have looked at what type of sport in relation to the incontinence. And sort of logically, the high-impact sports that have uh, Valsalva maneuvers and a lot of gravity landing um, have higher rates. So there they are. Trampolinists and gymnastics have a fantastically high rate. And poor them, they wear little suits that don't give them room to <laughs> hide any pads or anything like that. So in gymnastics, this is just straight up. Everybody knows it, and it's happening all the time. Um, and then you can see, as you think about the body position and the, the landing impact, um, they get less and less as you go down the, um, down the list. <laughs> so what's happening? Well, during a Valsalva maneuver, like if, uh, if you're hitting a tennis ball with a racket, you are having a Valsalva maneuver during the point of contact so that you can brace and have um, maximal you know, uh, compression against the ball, I guess. So you've got increased intra-abdominal pressure. You've got gravity when you're landing the heel strike and the absorption of the material that you're landing on, like a trampoline versus pavement, those are going to come into play. The leg position is going to matter also. So cross-country runners might experience something different than um, a golfer. And then, of course, the pelvic floor muscles matter as well. 
<clears throat> okay, so there were 34 studies about this, but they were all in adult women. And um, what was being demonstrated was that even the very elite athletes have this problem. So what I wanted to know was, well, what if they're a little bit younger? Does it have anything to do with menarche? Does it have anything to do with um, maturity as they get through adolescence? Because all of these women were in college. They were mostly Olympians and NCAA uh, Division I athletes. And I was seeing it plenty in high school girls, so I knew it was happening. Um, but it's not just during athletics. That's just one of the times that they're experiencing it. It's also during activities of daily living and also during laughter sometimes. So again, wanted to figure out those three buckets. So the four goals of that study were to find out how much is incontinence happening to female athletes, um, look at the relationship between the rate of their incontinence and the degree of their athleticism, how athletic are they, how much sport are they doing, um, look at any patterns that we could find among the context of where their incontinence is happening during athletics, during ADLs, during laughter, and then also look a little bit about their habits, their bowel and bladder habits, because theoretically that would certainly set them up for it if they were constipated all the time. So we got IRB approval and developed a questionnaire, which is pretty neat, and um, took the questionnaire to three sports teams at a local high school, to the field hockey team, the soccer team, and the cross-country running team. We gave out 52, got back 44, and did, again, really simple descriptive statistics. And the results were that more than the previous studies, remember 28, 26 to 28% of elite athletes in the previous studies were having incontinence. These girls, it was 34%. 35% of them experienced incontinence during laughter and 11% of them during ADLs. If you group them a little bit, those who are experiencing incontinence during athletics, 57% of them also had incontinence during laughter. So to me, there is some overlap here and maybe some exacerbation with the athleticism. Okay, so the number of hours per week that they're in athletics seems to affect the incontinence. So the girls who exercise two to four hours per week, which is not that much for a varsity athlete, that's not, that's not what a varsity team would be doing. But if you get up to eight hours, now you're talking that's usually varsity or JV at a um, daily level. And you can see if they're going greater than eight hours, there's a big jump in their incontinence. And then if you look at how many seasons per year they're that active, and that usually is a pretty um, elite athlete, right? They're not just doing three varsity sports. They're also doing a club sport in the summer. So that's a very committed person. And so the girls who are doing two sports had a much lower rate than the girls doing three varsity sports. And then the elite athletes doing four sports had a noticeably higher rate. So 57% of the participants with athletic incontinence play four seasons. 77% of the uh, participants with laughter incontinence play four seasons, and 100% of the girls, the 11 girls who have ADL incontinence, play four seasons. And then the bowel observation, 79% of the, uh, the girls who had incontinence had a bowel pattern that's too firm. So there is some stuff that can be done here. There are quite a few limitations. This was a really small study. Uh, it was a pilot study that I'm hoping to repeat in... Um, Kittery High School this coming spring with a much bigger population. Um, we need to compare them to non-athletes, and it is much harder to round up a group of adolescent non-athletes than it is um, athletes. They just don't gather in the same easy way. So uh, that's proven a little bit challenging. 
the, this was done in a pretty homogenous socioeconomic group. Um, we only did three sports. It would love to do more sports. And um, the questionnaire that we developed hasn't been fully validated, so that's sort of part, part of the process is validating the, the uh, questionnaire. Okay, so some of the conclusions of this study were that 34%, which is more than the elite athletes previously, 34% of the adolescent female athletes have incontinence during their athletics. Uh, the more hours per week and the more seasons per year the girls are playing, the higher the rate of incontinence seems to be. And the, those who experienced incontinence during athletics, also some of them experienced it during laughter and to a lesser degree during ADLs. So that's that. That was very interesting uh, stuff. I wonder in that last study of the athletes if you made any attempt to assess their habits of water intake. Uh, I get the impression seeing these young athletes, men and women, that they're glued to their water, water bottles. Yeah. And there is this thing about them keeping hydrated, 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 because they get the, I wonder if they overhydrate. I think that's a great point. Um, the questionnaire that we used then uh, did not include that, and it's been refined since then, and now it is included. So I really agree with you. And there, there can be some strategies about that, right? Of course, they do need to be super well hydrated, but not in the two hours preceding practice. They can taper off then and make up for it again later. So, yep, Shelley. So um, I understand that mechanism of stress why are you seeing higher rates of success in the practice here versus not just what anecdotally these other MPs were seeing, but in the literature you're saying that kids with um, ACEs have lower rates of success, but you're seeing equal rates of full success and higher rates of partial success. So what have you explored that at all? No. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I would guess that it might be that people were not separating them into two groups. They might have lumped ACEs along with anxiety, depression, things that are diagnosed um, psych or behavioral disorders. And that's not, that's not a totally unfair lumping. Um, but to me, that because the ACEs can be so transient, it's worth separating them. So maybe it's that I put a lot of time into identifying that and dwelling on it with the family. Maybe it's just that I'm um, identifying it in my own brain as these are two separate things. I don't know. Um, when I sit and listen to these, I feel like 50% of what I do is either psychiatry or incontinence <laughs> or some sort of urinary dysfunction. Um, so thank you mm -hmm. for studying it. But my, uh, my question is, for the elite athletes, the ones who, like, you feel like they're abdominal, like, it's sort of that relative muscle weakness that they have. Do you know what the success rate is with physical therapy? Like, is that something that they can easily overcome? Like, is this something that should be out there to all athletes? Let them know, like, it can be better than this? I think it's a great idea. Um, I mean, great question. We, I was starting to form a study which would have taken that information and implemented it at, at Dartmouth College. Um, we have a lot of really enthusiastic people ready to help do that at the college. Um, but what, you ha what I'm finding is the people that um, have the most incontinence at a young age don't care, right? The girls in high school and at Dartmouth in particular 
what I'm hearing from the athletic trainer and from some of the athletes is that, you know, this isn't an all women's um, small group team. They are very tightly bonded. They pee a little bit during it. But Dartmouth does their laundry. They're not walking to call us with wet shorts, right? So they are taking off the wet stuff. So it's like sweat. It's not going to phase them. These are hardcore athletes, Division I NCAA. So they're not really going to be phased by it, nor do I want them to be, right? Their athleticism is fantastic. I wouldn't want any 18-year-old any girl to see this and go, oh, my, I better not exercise four seasons of the year. Um, so... So I think that the, the irony is the kids who probably experience it at that age don't want to engage in the conversation, probably wouldn't go to PT. Um, they don't really even want to talk about it with me. Um, but then you talk to 40-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-old women who have, um, it's really a barrier, right? They don't want to exercise in public because this is a big embarrassment to them. And that actually affects people's uh, engagement in exercise, which has so many other health ramifications. So you've got these high schoolers and college students who have free access to an athletic trainer who could help them, you know, very easily. They have great access and it doesn't cost them anything. And they have time in their lives to do it, but they don't want to do it. And then you've got 45, you know, 50-year-old um, women who uh, are experiencing it. It's a very big deal to them. They don't have time to go to physical therapy, and they're not getting access to the physical therapy, um, pelvic floor physical therapist that they need. So it's a real mismatch that's a bummer. Yeah. Richard, I was wondering, going on um, Trisha's question, the natural history of these athletes, because a lot of people are elite athletes in high school and then drop off in college, and then the elite athletes in college drop off, and very few of them continue to be elite athletes into their mid-20s. Right. As they lose their elite status, does their pelvic floor strengthen again, and do they have less incontinence? There's actually a study about that. by uh, their, the, my, the primary researchers in this are two Norwegian women, and they have access to all of the Olympic athletes, so they have this amazing access to, the, to interviewing these Olympians 30 years later. So some of the studies are about um, former Olympians kind of retrospectively re remembering um, were they incontinent then and comparing it with their status now. And it does seem that there are, you know, so this is only 30% of the elite athletes, and they do seem to have a, a continued predisposition to incontinence, not as strong as when they were at the elite level, but it does sort of stay for them. Whereas there is also a large group of women that really have no problem with this, and, and they don't even later in life. Um, I, I might have missed this, but um, did you look at uh, hormonal status vis-a-vis -vis menstrual cycles? Because the um, older women who are postmenopausal, it's a big problem. Right, right, and a different, different animal. So I, I have not done any surveys with adult women yet, although I have a questionnaire developed for that, and it does have those questions in it. In the adolescence, there are questions about menarche, um, frequency of menses, so we're trying to at least bring that into the discussion somewhat. So you pointed out that stress can be a factor as well. Have you controlled for a stress in these elite athletes? I imagine their stress level is really high. No, that's a great question, and no, I don't think that the, because of the stress thing is me bringing in the ACE information, and these people are physical therapists with athletes, so they wouldn't, that, that crossover hasn't happened yet, but it's a great thought. <clears throat> so thanks for a great talk, Bridget. Um, I'm going back to the ACEs part. Um, won't surprise you. Um, for a lot of health issues, there's a dose response curve with the number of ACEs and the more significant health responses. 
Um, and I wonder if your sense is that you're, there's a similar relationship within continents um, and response to therapy. I totally agree with you. Um, you know, there are very few kids that are just going to have one ACE because at least at the acute phase of that stressor happening, it usually brings other stuff with it. So, you know, three of the elements may have happened in the past and now one of them is lingering, you know, so you see this change. Um, I do think that there's a dose response that's observable in the acute phase of when the stressor is happening. And then as that dies out, the symptoms get better almost on their own. I mean, the further you get away from the stressor, the better it's going to get. But a lot of kids need a little help getting, making that jump to get out of that phase. Um, I, I, I did ask about the number of um, stressors, but didn't do statistics to calculate whether we were seeing higher rates in the kids that had multiples. This is, thank you, this is, this is really important. Have schools or other people looked at it so that when the girls get off the bus after a two-hour bus ride, <laughs> are there sufficient facilities around so that uh, they can void, or, or do they have to just tough it out? I'd say tough it out. I mean, this conversation is not comfortable. Um, it's not comfortable for them to have at all. This is, it's embarrassing. And even, even bringing this to the high school was um, it's, it's crossing social barriers to talk about this stuff. I mean, that's where I'd like this to go. If you look at the progress in uh, social conversation that has happened with a lot of things that were shocking that are now, you know, there are vibrator ads and there are hilarious condom ads and um, there are, we've broken down a lot of barriers, but this is still a total no-go, especially in anybody under 40. So, um, so no, I would say that the facilities, the thought process about this except for the field hockey coach, because we've talked about this a lot. It's really not on anybody's radar. You didn't mention male athletes. Do they have any incontinence problems? Yeah, great question. If you go to a marathon, you'll see men stopping during the race and peeing on the side. And bikers, I understand, um, high-level bike racers, either stop to pee in sync or they pee during the race or there seems to be, I mean, that's, it's, a, it's an issue for anybody that's ex, uh, exercising for a, an extended period of time and drinking during it, right? So yes, um, I had to break it down and just do girls to begin with. I think I, my suspicion is the access to the conversation is going to be even harder with the boys because I won't have that rapport with them. Um, and it's so obvious to me in clinic that it's happening with the girls. Um, it does seem to be more prevalent, just when clinical observation seems to be more prevalent in teenage girls. How about bowel incontinence? Is that ever a problem with laughter? Oh, great question. Bowel incontinence during laughter. Um, it's not something that I've encountered in clinic. The bowel incontinence is usually during um, prolonged holding and holding and holding. The kid sort of knows he needs to go, she needs to go, and they're not all kinds of reasons that they're holding. Um, but that has much more to do with a stressful environment or um, an oppositional kid that I haven't heard it come up with laughter. So um, anxiety in young children, are you seeing a consistently higher rate with children who have diagnosed anxiety versus a traumatic event that they're, you know, a higher state for that? I kind of lump them together just in the same way that I lump ADHD and lack of attention for a kid that's going through something stressful. To me, their brain is not capable of listening to their bladder right then, right? They're, they've got much more urgent issues to pay attention to, and the bladder goes to the back seat. 
So that's when we depend on the teachers and the parents and everybody else to give them the structure. Um, but yes, definitely, if, if I know that a child has anxiety or I'm witnessing anxiety that's undiagnosed, I usually tell them, look, I don't know you that well. I've only known you for an hour, but this is what I'm seeing, and that's a big part of this. So perhaps, uh, well, Trisha might study this, uh, this phenomenon in practice given her population, but I think a reminder for all of us, residents especially, that these are studies that were generated from observations in clinical practice and, and questions that arose as to why, and this is a good example for all of us on what we can do. We conceivably could also have access to summer students, medical students, as, as medical faculty, just as Bridget has had access to nursing students, and so as we are in the winter and might think about summer opportunities, this research is initially predicated on observations that you have and the hypothesis generating. So thank you for that reminder, Bridget, and you certainly provoked a lot of uh, discussion. Good. Thank you very much.